Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And today we're joined on the phone by VP Research Director Pascal Mesca to discuss really where we stand in moving towards the adaptive enterprise. Welcome, Pascal. Thanks for having me. Over the last several years, whether in the context of DevOps or whatever concept it was, the CIO has been asked to go faster. But adaptive is different than fast. Could you just give a backdrop to what adaptive is? Yeah, adaptive is really different because what we are seeing is that companies are no longer dealing with you know the needs of a single business transformation where, like in the context of many of the digital endeavors that we've seen so far, you try to sort of you know shift a product proposition or you shift a customer value proposition to something different than you are ultimately done once this project has been completed. What we're seeing is that companies are exposed to a number of change factors and, and that change is really the only constant that they are exposed to. So being adaptive is really about you know being able to anticipate tomorrow's market needs and be able to sort of predict how customers are shifting their expectations and their requirements. And then underpinning that, leveraging continuous technology upgrades um, as a way to you know drive that alignment with you know customer desires. Um, and of course, this also comes with a significant change in how you have to organize yourself as a company. Um, you know, shifting away from old school silo structures to more open kind of ecosystem driven operating environments that not only drive internal efficiency, but also, again, you know, look at uh, customer value and drive great customer expectations. So other than agile and DevOps, which was really about uh, shifting from, if you will, um, you know, a project mindset to a product mindset, this is actually taking it a step further and really sort of elevating uh, the thinking uh, towards, you know, not only customer obsession, but being able to change as customer requirements do and also, you know, adapting to some of the other market changes and forces that are continuing to hit us, uh, whether it's, you know, global trade wars or Brexit or, you know, technology revolutions that seem to be coming um, at a much faster pace these days. Yeah, on that last point, I mean, there's no short list of acute items facing, let's just say, Europe. I mean, to your point, there's recessionary concerns, especially in the UK. Brexit is still unclear as to what form it will take and what it will do. Trade wars are clearly starting to have to put to rest on existing global supply chains and norms. You have more aggressive cyber threats. You have climate change. I mean, there's no shortage of things already on the table that companies need to be able to adapt to depending on which, which way they go. Absolutely, and it's it's really impacting uh, entire ecosystems of industries. If you think about the automotive industry as an example, where that shift to you know meeting the personal transportation needs of of customers, but doing so in an environmentally friendly and sustainable way, uh, means a massive shift in the way uh, you not only you know develop and produce your cars, but really how you serve your customers uh, on on 
ongoing basis. So shifting from you know a product mindset, a ship and forget mindset, where it was initially all about building a perfect physical product, to engaging with your customer around uh, their continuously changing mobility and services needs. Again, reflecting very much also on you know their personal preferences when it comes to sustainability and environmental concerns is a huge shift for companies um, that you know come from from this very traditional kind of engineering mindset um, and we see this also in many other industries you know where um, companies that for so long have been uh, world leaders you know around fixed product propositions where value was delivered around uh, physical features and functions now need to think very differently um, and really Im, you know, sort of embed themselves in the changing customer context that they are serving, which again is is, is a strong change uh, driver, uh, also from an organizational and cultural perspective for these companies. If I start with one piece, which is the core technology stack, as you described, many companies are still digging out of technical and data debt. And so it's hard for them to be adaptive today, but clearly those investments are pointing at an environment, a platform, whichever way you want to describe it, that allows them to move more quickly. So in your mind, from a European standpoint, where are companies in digging out of debt? Well, I think intellectually they all understand that, you know, the core has to change. It has to become more flexible and open. But unfortunately, I would say 80% of the companies are still hostage to your core systems and core processes that were built in the 1980s or 90s, where, you know, the focus was really on building processes and systems that were built for linear transactions, whereas what we're describing here with the adaptive enterprise is the need to build systems that are, you know, focused on the continuous interaction with people, with your employees, with your customers, with your partners. And so that elevates, you know, what we currently have sort of, you know, running in the context of old school ERP system uh, and moving it to platforms, you know, where it's about platforms around supply chains, customer service, uh, customer relationship management. Um, but unless you really are able to to make this also intellectual shift from linear transactions to permanent interaction, which again also means that you have to you know, take out some of the siloed business equations, change your incentive structures, focus more on customer outcomes rather than you know, internal efficiency and cost savings. This is very hard to do and this is why you know, a lot of the companies, even though they intellectually understand that they need to change, are really taking baby steps at this very point. I mean, one company that uh, I would say is maybe a little more advanced uh, is, is Daimler in Germany, the car company, because they have really sort of understood that in order to make this shift from being a car manufacturer to someone who can meet the personal transportation needs of customers on an ongoing basis, they really need to shift, you know, not only the way they think and work, but also need to change some of the core processes. And they actually started with the HR management system. So they looked at HR and the way they would manage talent and, and human capital and realize that, you know, the traditional systems that were built around traditional ERP core stuff, you know, don't have the flexibility, don't have the openness, don't have, you know, the adaptability, if you will, 
uh, to drive this, you know, sort of more ecosystem, more interaction-oriented human capital management context. And so they opened themselves up to, you know, the concept of swarm organizations, bringing in outside experts, leveraging the gig economy, and managing talent in a much more, you know, sort of holistic kind of manner, where it's not just about your own people, but really about an ecosystem and where, you know, you ultimately measure things, not so much in the context of, you know, linear efficiencies from an internal silo perspective, but really sort of measure it on the, in the context of how quickly you can change the company to become this, you know, new modern mobility service provider. So, but these are unfortunately still the exceptions from the rule. I would say 80% of the companies, you know, they are effectively hostage to these, you know, old school systems. It's very hard to break them all without a strong mandate from the top, which has to come from the CEO. You know, those barriers will be hard to break. In that example, Pascal, you know, Daimler's looked at existing processes and then reimagined processes, I'm assuming technologies, what have you. Are you seeing that companies are sort of skipping that step and maybe layering on automation or AI and codifying processes that should have been reevaluated in the process? That they're bolting on that quote unquote innovation. So there's no question that AI and automation are, you know, significant forcing functions that will help companies to become adaptive. Unfortunately, what we are seeing at this moment in time is a lot of tactical behavior where line of business managers are really just looking at their siloed business processes and then use AI and automation to drive out internal costs. What they should be doing, in fact, is to look for opportunities around AI and automation to integrate between adjacent processes. So rather than just taking out 5 or 6% of your supply chain cost, you know, look at AI to see how supply chain can be integrated uh, with order intake, with manufacturing, with after-sales service. And But for, for, the, to, for this to happen, uh, it really requires a different kind of perspective. And I think where the weakness is, in particular with a lot of the European companies that we work with, is that you know, those old silo structures still prevail that, you know, CEOs are not giving out sufficient mandates to not only integrate between silos, but ultimately scrap them. And this is why, you know, examples like Daimler, where a company deliberately moves to a different way of working, remain the exception from the rule. So one of the concepts of adaptive is that the enterprise adapts, not a silo within the enterprise, but the entire enterprise and there's been a lot of discussion around innovation, emerging technologies. But to your point, I sort of want to circle back to this, Pascal, which is unless there's a, an opportunity for rethinking the operating model, meaning operate differently that allows the enterprise to be adaptive truly, some of these technologies may simply be suboptimized within their respective arenas. Well, not only sub-optimizing, but I think what you're seeing now with regards to some of the technology backlash where clients are clearly frustrated with you know, the investments that they have made into things like AI or blockchain for that matter, is because they jumped to this technology still with a view uh, that is driven by their silo business processes. 
Um, and so to this extent, you know, what we see happening is that uh, the technology now gets blamed for some of the you know flaws that are still uh, stemming from the current operating model, uh, which again um, is is not something that you know is desirable because the technology ultimately has the potential to really help these companies become more adaptive. You stated earlier, Pascal, that most companies are working from a relatively similar tech stack, and that's certainly true within industry. And we just came through a wave of looking at things like mobile apps. And from that, what we learned was there was a sense of digital sameness at the end of the day. I mean, people put money into it, but when they came out, one app was not significantly different than another app. And so they really didn't, they might have made advancements in the technical side of it, but they did not make advancements in differentiating the firm. How do you see this playing out in terms of adaptive or moving the tech stack forward? Well, again, I think what we need to focus on is not so much the technology in the first instance, but it's the ability of the company to think, you know, through the lens of the customer and reimagine the value proposition of their products and services in the context of permanent change. A lot of the apps that you see out there, whether it's for mobile banking or even for things like car sharing or ride sharing, they look the same because everybody has been through a customer journey mapping process. They look the same because everyone has been doing at least one design thinking workshop. And so they all obviously use the same tools, they use the same methodologies, they use the same text, and they arrive at the same conclusion. So that's why these apps look all the same. What's missing is really you know, the courage, um, and, and I would say to a certain extent also um, you know, the mandate to think very differently and to reimagine uh, what customers might do if you offer them certain options or certain elements of a service that you, know, you cannot capture through current design thinking or customer journey mapping. Uh, being bold, uh, I mean, you know, Steve Jobs didn't do a single focus group before he launched the iPhone because he reimagined how customers would use it. And I think it's that um, you know, ability to imagine that courage uh, that is, is failing um, you know, for most companies to really deliver the results that they desire. So one of the other observations that you have made, Pascal, in this work is when we look at emerging technologies, that often those technologies are looked at independently of each other. And there's this other model sort of broadly called the innovation chain model that says don't look at a technology in isolation, but look at the technologies together to find out where synergies begin to exist that will create significant advancement. Can you talk a little bit about the distance between sort of looking at technologies in isolation versus looking them through the innovation chain model? Well, of course. I mean, the innovation chain essentially allows us to think in terms of emerging technologies as a portfolio. Uh, and this is really what ultimately, you know, decision makers will have to do. They will have to apply a venture capital mindset to manage, you know, a broad array of technology that essentially build on top of each other. You know, as you rightly mentioned, um, you know, blockchain would have not been possible without AI. AI would have not been possible without the shift to the cloud and to data lakes. So 
every one of the new technologies builds on you know another piece of technology that was an emerging technology at one point in time and so managing you know emerging technology in the context of these innovation chains where you know, one thing builds on top of another not only allows you to sort of focus on the right technology investments for the right moment but it also allows you to sort of pick the right partnerships so let's say if you've missed the boat to the cloud there's no need now to basically rebuild your own cloud you can go straight to aws microsoft or google so if you missed the boat on IoT and you are in the manufacturing sector, for example, you can now turn to companies like Siemens or GE who provide scalable IoT platforms. Um, but you need to focus on distinguishing your product experiences based on cloud and IoT and focus much more on things like AR or VR, for instance, or 3D printing as a way to build the product differentiation. So this allows you to ultimately you know, focus your investment efforts and your partnership effort along the lines of an end-to-end -end portfolio, but also allows you to sort of tackle the next wave of emerging technology because you now understand how each one of the segments of emerging technology build on top of one another. From a CIO perspective, I'm going to be in charge of driving towards an adaptive enterprise that, to your point, can predict and get in front of some of the dynamics outside my four walls while differentiating along the way. But if everyone's turning to the same cloud options or the same IoT options, where do I find my place of differentiation in the context of technology architecture or how it serves the enterprise's interests? Like, wh where do I find my core competency and my place at differentiation? That's a great question. I think it ultimately comes down to the point that you have to realize that each one of these emerging platforms or technology assets uh, that you manage in a portfolio will be put together individually by you. I mean, it's like legal building blocks, right? I mean, your individual value proposition yeah, on the one hand, needs to scale. That's why you want to invest into existing platforms and services so that you can ramp up things quickly. But at the same time, you, know, you need to build scalable assets around technologies such as AI or blockchain that allow you then to differentiate in those individual customer use cases that you feel you can excel on. And this, again, is then a combination of managing a technology portfolio that scales, but also having the intuition, the imagination, and the courage to think through things differently and be able to sort of contextualize whatever it is that you're providing so that it really builds these enduring customer relationships um, that you're looking for. Let me give you an example. One of our clients is one of the world's largest producers of packaging machine for yogurts. And they discovered that in order to really build a differentiated value proposition with their customers who are the dairy milk farm companies who produce yogurts, was not only that they used IoT-driven data to help predict the maintenance of a machine, but that they integrated also consumer demand data so that the you know, prediction, the, the, the predictive maintenance of the machine 
could be synchronized with when consumer demand was lower for yogurts. And not only did this company, the manufacturer, use the data from the consumer to optimize the maintenance schedule, but they actually resold that data you know, to their dairy milk farm com- customers as a way to add you know, value to the machine proposition. So giving your customer insights around what their customers are doing and enable them also to predict and be adaptive in the longer term became an integral part of that machine value proposition. So that goes to show that a machine manufacturer was able to not only you know, do the standard thing that every machine manufacturer would do, but really think beyond that and then use customer data and customer data as a way to differentiate with their B2B customers. Pascal, this may be a little bit forward-looking, but something that you just talked about is about like ecosystem relationship, right? So you're talking about an ad- adaptive enterprise is one thing, but are you seeing maybe five, ten years down the line that the ecosystem becomes more adaptive because of, as an example, customer data is being shared or technologies are, you know, being commonly used or their standards or something along those lines that is changing the shape of ecosystems? I think you're starting to see some of this happening already uh, in in certain industries, um, you know, where, for instance, entire supply chains are operated in a common platform where this is not just about uh, driving standardization around product catalogs, but where, you know, there's co-design and co-development happening uh, as a way to drive adaptability across a wider ecosystem of a particular industry. I think this is happening already, uh, and you see it uh, in a variety of industries. You see it in the context of supply chain ecosystems, for instance, where competitors are sharing uh, a platform to not just drive um, you know, sustainability and scalability around the supply chain, but where they do co-innovation and co-development using the same platform. Uh, you just have to look at uh, the recent joint venture between BMW and Mercedes-Benz, where they joined forces uh, around their car sharing scheme as a way to together learn about you know changing customer behavior and the potential impact of this business model uh, on their traditional way of working so there's a lot of experimentation already happening i think what we see though at the same time is that a lot of this experimentation is very organizationally confined to what i would refer to as digital bold on organizations that you know have the freedom that have the wiggle room to do things a little differently but where you know, organizations often miss out on the opportunity to take the lessons learned from these ecosystem relationships to, and to implement them into their traditional uh, organizations. So again, we're going back to this issue of you know, lots of experimentation, lots of intellectual understanding of how markets are going to change and what does it take to become adaptive. But the big roadblocks, the killer, um, you know, the antibodies uh, are really sitting in those operational silo structures. One of the areas that we hit on earlier, Pascal, is the concept of automation in an AI. And as you said, a lot of firms are going to pursue that in light of uh, margin expansion or cost reduction, what have you. But the next phase is going to deal with how companies infuse a deeper set of 
automation, AI, robotics into it. And we're working on a major piece of work related to the future of work that talks about how leaders will go from where we are today to some place where there's an elegant productive relationship between human and machine. Can you talk a little bit about how the future of work folds into the adaptive enterprise? Yeah, what we're seeing in the context of the future of work uh, are essentially two trends that are coming together. So on the one hand, you have AI and automation that ultimately are driving out you know, a lot of the mundane tasks and basically will enable workers, you know, be they blue color or white color, to do different things and focus on things that ultimately drive more value. At the same time, you, know, you have things like the gig economy emerging. You have freelance ecosystems uh, where a lot of the skills that you need to do things differently may actually reside outside of your firewall. So you need to look at you know, the way you manage work really in the context of these two you know, forcing functions where on the one hand, AI and automation are going to you know, help you drive more higher value work with your existing employees. But at the same time, you also look towards the outside and see what kind of talent structures, what kind of skills, you know, can I tap into maybe more on an intermediary basis? Again, being adaptive, that's the key word. Um, you know, one of the resulting factors is that we, as we have shown in a recent piece of research, is that as a result, career models will change. You know, this is no longer the world of, you know, every one of us making careers in the context of a silo business function like HR, like finance, like marketing, but it's much more a question of us all gaining more interdisciplinary skill sets, moving up and then right into marketing, moving up and then left into sales, moving maybe into delivery for another project. Uh, I mean, this is the way Google, for instance, is managing its people. You know, it's not a question of what you, how long your tenure is or, you know, how many siloed business functions you have basically uh, managed to achieve. No, this is a question of how many different projects have you managed? How many different skills have you accumulated? And so it is is that that ultimately drives the future of work, again, initiated by a rise of automation in AI on the one hand, but also the emergence of the gig economy and the bursting workforce uh, on the other hand. So in this discussion, we've given a fairly good view towards the different piece parts of adaptive. And, you know, we've done work at Forrester that would suggest that adaptive enterprises grow at 3.2 times the rest of the market. I mean, there's a pretty compelling business case. But nonetheless, the journey ahead is hard and more more importantly, maybe, is different. So if I'm a CIO out there, what is your advice to her in terms of getting started and driving the kind of momentum and building blocks for the first year? One of the first things to do would be to look at one or two of the core systems or core processes that are underlying your new customer experience and try to reimagine them from the outside in. Meaning that if you are, let's say, trying to sell a product as a service proposition, look at the finance and the billing system, for instance, and try to reimagine how billing in the context of product as a service is becoming an important factor for driving a great customer experience. 
driving out the experience gaps that exist because of siloed business structures and business systems that are not made for the permanent interaction with people, I think is the first order of business. And you want to pick on, you know, a couple of these maybe low-hanging fruit, be it finance, be it billing, be it maybe customer service, and try to reimagine those processes so that they can add more value in the context of a customer relationship and not just focus on internal efficiency and cost. You have to look for a business partner that is equally driven by this notion to become adaptive and that is willing also to maybe you know scratch some of the, the existing metrics and shift them from internal efficiency to something that has to do with customer outcome, maybe looking at the net promoter score as a way to measure the value of some of these internal systems and doing a continuous translation of the value of these internal systems in the context of an end-to-end customer lifecycle. And I think, again, if you are looking at some of these early lighthouse projects and then do the measurement and do the talking along the lines of this is becoming now the best practice for you know, becoming an adaptive enterprise, then you will start to win all, over more hearts and minds of your internal colleagues and employees. Thank you, Pascal. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.